professor in special education in Seattle, Washington, Cinda Johnson lectured about many developmental and psychological issues young people face, among them bipolar disorder. All that flew out the window, though, when her daughter, Linnea, began experiencing manic mood swings and crippling depression while away at college. Hospitalizations, multiple medications, electroconvulsive therapy, Linnea's treatment for bipolar disorder was long and not always successful. These days, though, with help of strong family, friends, and professionals, Linnea has bounced back, and together, Cinda and Linnea now travel the country speaking openly and often that treatment does work and about the importance of family and friends in that treatment. They join us today. Cinda and Linnea, welcome to Flip Switch. Thank you. Thanks for glad to be on it. So you guys have kind of, in some respects, defied what are often the horror stories and kind of kept this close family unit going through trial and tribulation. I guess I'd like to start first with you, Cinda. Going back, I guess, six years ago, uh, you were this person who had been researching disorders for years and years. So you must have known everything there was to know about it, right? Yeah, I thought I did, or, you know, I had some confidence that I did, but I guess I also knew that from the parents that I'd worked with, that there's a whole other side of it, but I could not envision what it was really like. Tell us about the first time something, uh, you kind of got an insight into that other side. Probably thinking about high school when Linnea had some really severe depressions and all my tricks of how to help someone get through the blues or anxiety about school and all those kinds of things weren't really working. And it wasn't really dawning on me that this was a chemical thing going on in her brain. It was biological. It was, you know, something that we couldn't just fix through talk therapy with mom and daughter. And that was a very helpless feeling as a mom. That's something that comes up over and over again is this idea that maybe if I say the right thing, uh, maybe if I do something, somebody will snap out of it. What was it like to not be able to snap somebody out of it? Well, and I, you know, I think that definitely being close and being able to talk is supportive and it, and it needs to be there. But, you know, it was frustrating. It sort of gave the message that maybe we weren't, none of us were trying hard enough to make this go away. It's very common that, you know, just, there's always this kind of disconnect between teenagers and adults. Yet you had a mother who kind of knew the ins and outs of mental health in a lot of ways. But yet you were in this own little not good world yourself as a teenager. How did that affect your experience of depression? Well, for me, I mean, I grew up knowing all about depression, what I thought. And because my mom knew everything about it, I just on some level felt like I should be able to fix it myself because I knew all the tricks. I knew what depression was. So I thought, you know, that I was more well-equipped I guess, than my peers might have been because I thought I knew about counseling or all the things that I could have done to make it better. And we've always had a close relationship, so I did talk to my mom throughout all of it. And it was like the more we tried to fix it ourselves, the more frustrated I got at myself because I wasn't getting better. So it's tricky, and I think it was especially tricky growing up having known what depression was and still not being able to really understand it. You talk about that disconnect between what you thought you knew and then what it actually was like. So I guess to the best of your ability, what is it like compared to what you thought it was? We do a lot of presenting. I actually read a journal that I wrote when I was in high school. And 
I mean, I read the DSM as a kid, and so I thought I knew all of the points of what depression was. But reading this journal that I wrote when I was a sophomore in high school, I hit all of the symptoms of depression without realizing it. I think the thing that stuck out to me the most was I figured out all the things I needed to change, so why isn't my mood changing? And it's that realization that no matter what you do, it's not going to change because it is chemical. And I think there's a point where you can try to exercise or go to yoga or get acupuncture. And sometimes it just, it does take medication or it does take a next step up. And it just, for me, it just kept getting deeper and deeper the harder I tried. And I think that's when it really became, I think we really knew it was a depression at that point. At the time, was it something that you pinned on something like you you said, well, if it just wasn't for this, I wouldn't be depressed? Or was it more of an amorphous kind of, I don't quite know why I'm depressed, I think? It was kind of both. I was a really, really big perfectionist, and I still am. But in high school, I was doing every club and every sport, and I thought I was depressed because I was never good enough. And I thought I was being a baby because... I had all these great things going for me, but I still was depressed because I wasn't good enough. It was definitely something that for me, I thought that it was my being a perfectionist and not necessarily just my body and doing too much and, doing too much and yeah. going too hard and then crashing. So then that takes you into college where you, I guess you're still having issues and, and you haven't quite come to terms with it yet. At what point did you have to come to terms with it? I actually was kind of forced to come to terms with it. I kind of shut down by the time I was a sophomore in college. I couldn't eat. I couldn't leave my room. I broke up with the love of my life at that time and I couldn't function. And he eventually confronted me and forced me to tell him what was going on and actually called my parents in Seattle. I was in Chicago to tell them that I wasn't safe and that I needed to be taken home and taken care of because, I mean, at, at that point, it was deep enough that I was forced to confront it by the rest of my family and friends. How does that manifest? In a college environment, you're hitting certain bad cycles at home, and then you go away where you're all alone in this world where you have all this freedom. What does depression manifest when you have, oh, I guess, the world at your fingertips to some extent? I think that for me, it was really frustrating because I was everything was going right for me at that point. I was living with my best friends. I had just gotten a really cool teaching assistant position. I was doing really well in my classes, had this new boyfriend. And at that point, I think it was especially frustrating that this depression was coming back. And I had it, it was probably my fourth big depression at that point. And so I just couldn't understand why it would come back again. And it was something that, again, I couldn't fight it off, even though I felt like I had all these great things going and I couldn't understand why I was still depressed. So, Cindy, you get a phone call. That's got to be shocking in and of its own right. Yeah, and you know, she had come home for a holiday break between first and second semester and over the holidays and had told me, she said, I think something really bad is going to happen to me. I mean, she has now said that you know, she, if she's in tune with her body, she can kind of tell when this is happening. But at the time, I didn't really know what that was, but I was terrified. I mean, I knew something was seriously wrong. And so she went back to school in January and called me within a week sobbing and saying that she'd broken up with her boyfriend and that she was so unhappy and and her dad actually flew out and spent the weekend with her because I just 
had to make sure that somebody looked her in the eyes to see if she was okay, and, and he wanted to do that. And so he was only home three days. So he got the call from Charlie, and he said, Cinda, she is so, so sick. And I was actually at my parents' home across the state, and her dad was in the airport in Seattle, and he switched his ticket and flew straight to Chicago and called me from Chicago and said, this is really bad. She is really, really sick and brought her home and was at the bottom of that well. You know, I can only say that for every single young person listening to have people in their lives that they can trust and say, I'm heading down the well, get me some help. For Linnea to have told Charlie and Charlie to have had the courage to pick up the phone and call, knowing in his mind, he called it ruining her life. He ruined her life. I mean, that's what he was thinking because she had to leave school for a semester. She was home. She was hospitalized. So I look back at him and like, what a man's decision in a boy's body, you know? Also really important for friends and family to recognize what depression is because at that point I didn't, I mean, I wouldn't have told anyone really because I was so far beyond telling people and knowing even what it was. It was just, I couldn't even recognize how depressed I was. So for him to be able to know that's what it was and that something needed to happen, I think was really amazing. And I think that's why education and mental health is so important. At the time it was all going on, was it, Linnea, was it hard for you to talk about it with your family and friends? Um, I, I kind of just stopped talking to yeah. some extent. I yeah. just couldn't put it in words anymore. And I think that when I did talk, I couldn't help but cry or hyperventilate. So I kind of just shut down. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. When you're when you're at that level of depression, you can't even talk, you know. <laughs> or it might look for some people, it might look like anger or anxiety. But you're really too ill to say, "I'm, you know, I'm feeling depressed. I'm feeling this." But when she was asked the question, you know, "Are you safe? Do you feel safe?" The answer was no. Yeah. One thing that, that has always struck me about you guys, I've seen you guys talk and read your blogs, and one thing that strikes me is just kind of how committed not just any one person, but the family as a unit is to overcoming this thing. One of the unfortunate things we hear from a lot of people is, I'm working on this, but my family doesn't even believe in all this stuff, and they think I should just snap out of it. Looking back, how big was the family unit in dealing with it well? I think we we have, you know, we were always okay with it. But I think that's part of the reason that we're doing the work we're doing is because we know how privileged we are to have, you know, resources and have knowledge and information and have family members that, you know, we were just honest with people. And we didn't really allow anybody to say, oh, you know, just try to pull herself up by the bootstraps and quit being spoiled. I mean, we didn't allow that, but her inner circle was so strong. So we know we're privileged, and there are so many kids out there that don't have that, and it's not because their parents don't care about them or love them or whatever. They may not have the resources, and they may not have the knowledge or the understanding. I think that's why we do this. Yeah, and for me, having a strong family that was supporting me through all it, I think that's 80, 90% of why I'm here and why I'm doing so well is having that. And to know that over 50% of people don't have that, I think that's exactly why we do what we're doing is to provide them with a family in some way, even if mm -hmm. it's not their own. Right. Because everybody, you know, everybody needs a family, whether it's a, it's a, it's a yeah, sure. or not. Yeah. And, you know, we just recently had someone come to us that shared with us 
that she didn't know exactly. She didn't even use the words, but she said, I'm falling down that slippery slope. I don't know what it is. I mean, she was really, really nonstop crying, didn't know, and because of our blog. And so we, what we ended up doing for her was family. I made some phone calls and got some phone numbers because she was too depressed to do it. And Linnea said, I'll go with you to your first appointment. And, you know, that's sometimes what we need to do. Because when you're in that place, it's so hard to pick up a phone and make five phone calls to find somebody that finally says, oh, I can see you in a month, you know, or then to make that first step into that waiting room or to meet that first doctor or therapist. I also think it's really important just even if you notice a friend is really depressed in that state and you know nothing about mental health at all, then just being there to go through that process of educating themselves and educating yourself as a friend, I think that that is huge. You know, being in the waiting room, like learning about it as they learn about it. One of the things that that also struck me about you guys is just how kind of brutally out there and honest you are about what happened and what you guys are trying to do. And you don't pull any punches. And one of the things we hear, unfortunately, from a lot of teens is, I'm so upset. Things are going so poorly. I can't imagine telling anybody or being honest with anybody because it's already bad. If I tell people, they're going to put more restrictions on me or they're going to make fun of me. You know, why would I dare put myself in that position? Yeah, it's really, really scary. And I know, you know, Linnea, I think the thing that's been our saving grace through everything is how honest we are with each other. And it's it's hard. I mean, it's been hard to hear some of the things or read some of the things. I'm sure it's been hard for her to hear some of, of my concerns and worries. But, you know, that's been really important. But for the kids that I've worked with in my professional work, sometimes it's a question from a parent or a healthy adult that says, you know, what's going on in there and how are you feeling? What are you afraid of? And really being willing to sit there and listen to the answer because I think that young people sometimes try to cover up those feelings with all kinds of other behaviors and you know, be willing to say, you can tell me and I'm not going to move. I'm going to sit in this chair and I'm going to listen. I'm not going to freak out. And if it's drugs, if it's alcohol, if it's cutting, if it's, you know, whatever it is, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm going to help you find the help you need. It's okay. So, you know, from a parent's perspective or a, or a professional's perspective, that's been my I'm sure Lenita's got her thoughts yeah, on I think it's, I mean, I think that sharing your story is so huge, especially when it comes to fighting stigma. But, you know, you don't have to do like we do and go on a national level and share your story. But just being able to advocate for yourself with your doctor and to be honest and to say, you know, I've been drinking a lot and just being able to tell your doctor or close friends those little things, it's a huge step in getting treatment that you need. Just finding one person to trust enough and that person, you know, that you can trust to tell the truth to, but then if for some reason that person doesn't respond the way that you need them to, be ready for another person, you know, that you've got someone that you can trust, someone you can say, I need some help. And it, it is hard. I think that ultimately you just have to trust the world, <laughs> you know, like to, to know that if this person doesn't react as I would hope, then to trust the, the next person, though, it, you know, it gets really exhausting sometimes. One more little piece <laughs> I just want to add to that is, you know, telling the truth is so freeing. I started from the very beginning. I thought, you know what? If my daughter had diabetes, I wouldn't be afraid to tell my students or my colleagues or the other professors or my family that she was being treated for diabetes. Why would I lie for the fact that she was being treated for bipolar? And it feels 
screen. You don't have to tell everyone, just like you wouldn't tell everyone about your diabetes. You don't need to tell everyone, but to have it be a secret is painful, painful <laughs> very painful. It normalizes it to say, you know, this is part of what I'm dealing with, but it's not who I am. It's just what I'm dealing with. And yeah, I have a daughter that has a mental illness, but that's not who she is. That's just a part of what she struggles with. We all have our struggles. You guys have been through a lot now, and, and you've kind of conquered a lot. Is there anything, or maybe there isn't, what still scares you guys about the future and dealing with all this? <laughs> it scares me every, you know, if I let my mind go there. I mean, what's the future like? What's going to happen if? I mean, you can, you know, you can imagine the worst. You can imagine medication changes, and you can imagine, you know, the worst. But I heard a really cool thing one time from a woman on a, a radio station, and she said that she was so good at imagining the worst and she said, you know, I realized my imagination was so strong that I could actually imagine the best. And so I really try to move in that direction and imagine a stable, happy, healthy life with all the normal ups and downs that people have, knowing there's going to be challenges. Yeah, and I think that with any chronic illness, I mean, there's a level of fear that it's going to come back. I mean, it's always there, but that it's going to, you know, hit you really hard again. And I think also for anyone that's really been that close to suicide as I have, I think that there's also a fear of, you know, it hit me so fast that there's that level of what if it just suddenly appears again. Even though I know that now I know my body, now I work with my doctors and, you know, I don't think that'll happen. But I think for someone that's been through that, there's a level of post-traumatic stress and a level of fear that you still have to work through. You know, it's, it's a constant process, but just to know that I have done really well and that I have good safety nets in place. And we're both still in therapy. <laughs> you know, I mean, I think that's one of the things. You just, you just keep working on it. <laughs> uh, what, what is next for uh, Cinda and Linnea? Oh, we just got a, a book deal from um, a large publishing house, and we've accepted it. And we'll start editing the book in September, very seriously. We're hoping for a publication date in early 2012, but we don't really have that nailed down yet. It's going you know, to take a long time to bring a book out, <laughs> particularly at a, at a national level. And we're doing some traveling this fall. Yeah, just keep going from here. Yeah, and keep presenting and... It's getting, it's going faster and faster. More people are wanting us to present or speak or write, which is so exciting because I think it's such important work to do. Send Linnea Johnson. Thank you so much. Thank you, Chris. And thank you to all your listeners. You can find out more about Linnea and Cinda Johnson online at LaneaCinda.com. Both Linnea and Cinda keep blogs about their experiences and their writings. Check it out.